Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. It's going to be a wonderful hour as we continue our study into God's Word. And there's been so many great questions that came up uh, last hour, and I know I've got plenty of time for more questions about whatever you've been looking at, struggling with, wondering what the biblical understanding is of a passage or a biblical character. We've got lots of uh, time to take your questions. We've got Dr. Mark Muska in studio for the full hour. We call this hour Ask the Professor. So let me know what your questions are, 877-933-2484. Mark's been a professor here at the University of Northwestern for 35 years, and we're awfully glad to have him back in studio. Mark, welcome. Yeah, welcome. Yeah, yeah. So let me start with a question that came in from a thoughtful listener. My wingman, Terry, said, I want to find out about Genesis 3.15, and it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the head. On the heel. On the heel, yeah, right. Mm -hmm. Did Eve live the rest of her life expecting one of her own children to destroy Satan? Uh, Yeah, I don't know if she saw him as Satan, uh, but that's a definite maybe. Okay. We don't know. The Bible doesn't say that explicitly. I think... You know, we have to put our place back there with Adam and Eve, and they didn't know a lot at the beginning there. They they were close to God. They fellowshiped with him. But uh, as far as understanding all of this stuff, I don't even think they knew what it meant when God said that the, you will, you know, the, the knowledge of uh, the, the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil and what that even was. That was an abstract idea to them. They had never experienced it or anything. So mm-hmm. their knowledge was limited. But I suspect that she was anticipating that one of her children would do this. And my evidence is mainly from Genesis 4 1, because after they're kicked out of the garden, Uh, Then chapter 4 starts out, and it says, Then the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I've gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. And so that may be who she's thinking of. Your seed will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. So, Mm -hmm. But that's shaky, all right? We can't can't really take that to the bank like we can so much in Scripture. Mm -hmm. So let's go back to uh, the Old Testament again to stay there and ask about... When Rebecca got the word that she would have twins, they would be uh, warring nations. Yes, they—I don't know about warring Not, nations. I, I didn't say that right. But they would. Uh, these two. I don't know if it actually says that. I'm paging over to this now here, yeah. where I had it up and I lost it on my computer. Well, she's pregnant. So with these boys. And so uh, she, I'm not sure she knew that uh, this, uh, she had twins going on there. So this is, while she is pregnant. Yeah, two nations in your womb. Yes. This is Genesis. That's what I meant. 25. (laughs) Genesis 25. But, you know, it's implied, I take that back, because 
if you go back a couple of verses, I'm just going to read a little bit here, where it says, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife, Rebekah, because she was barren. And the Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, if it is so, why then am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And so it may be she didn't know it was twins, but she definitely was having the bumpity bump of the child movement mm-hmm. inside yeah. of her. Uh, that uh, uh, people who've had children, they, they, they recognize that's very common. And then the Lord says to her when she inquires, two nations are in your womb, two peoples will be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. And then she gives birth, and Esau is born first, and then Jacob comes uh, uh, just a little while later. Mm-hmm. And we know Esau to be an immoral, godless person? Uh, that is part of what comes, but it, it, he's not described this way uh, in Genesis 25. It says in verse 27, when the boys grew, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field. Jacob was a peaceful man living in tents. And so Isaac and Esau connected because okay. of that. And then Rebekah was more with uh, Jacob there. So I'm, I'm jumping into Hebrews 12, 16, 17, there, that there will be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for right. a single meal. And so that helps us later in yeah, the New does. Testament. But in the text of Genesis there, you don't really see it. It's obviously wrong for him to sell this birthright for a bowl of food. Right. That this is, <laughs> I don't uh, care how good the stew is. Well, what it, what it tells you is he did not value the birthright. Right. Mm-hmm. And so he, was, uh, he says he's at the point of death. That sounds like my kids when they were growing up and they come in and they're starving, <laughs> you know, and they're just not going to make it for five more minutes if you don't put food in front right. of them. And so I'm wondering if that's a little exaggeration on Esau's behalf there. So, so some of the physical and spiritual priorities of Isaac, Rebecca, Esau, and Jacob, they're kind of all over the map, aren't they? Well, it's, it's you know, he's, uh, Jacob's described as a man of peace here. Okay. And uh, Esau, he's kind of a manly man. He's out there hunting. Yeah. And that I think we have to be careful to assign negative traits to that of being a hunter and out there uh, versus a man of the house here with Jacob. Uh, sometimes we get into some star- stereotyping there that I'm not sure we can pull from the scriptures. So we've got to be careful. When I think of Jacob going in disguised as his brother. Oh, this is great. I mean, look, the ruse. They this put is the animal skin on his arms. I know. So when... Doesn't smell like him, doesn't talk like right. him. Isaac, when he feels him, his, Isaac's eyes aren't so good. They didn't have pearl vision back then, and no, so he's he's uh, almost blind. And yeah. so he he sounds like he's suspicious because he has I, uh, Jacob come over and he touches him and everything, and he must have been satisfied enough to give him the blessing. Yeah, I don't think this shows up in Scripture, Mark, but this ceremonial transfer of the birthright being bestowed by the father to the oldest son, mm-hmm. I didn't think of that as a private interaction. I mean, it sounds like he snuck into the into Dad's bedroom and said, "Here I am. Give me the birthright." Well, it wasn't in the bedroom. They were having a meal together. Okay. So this wasn't some. Isn't you know, that funny? Sec- That's where I went. Like secret. he was propped up in bed. <laughs> yeah. So it wasn't that way. I think, that, uh, Bill. You know, you have to consider that this kind of was self-evident in these families that the the oldest son was going to be the heir, and he would receive the blessing. Normally, that's why God is telling Rebecca even before they're born that the older will serve the younger. The blessing is going to go to Jacob and not to Esau. So this is, a, you know, if anything, I would call it maybe a formality when uh, this is decided there and uh, Esau, or, uh, 
Isaac decides to give Esau the blessing, and then it gets back to Rebecca, and here we go with the ruse that starts then. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Here's another question. This is a more of a pastoral question, which I find interesting. I have a college child who's walking far from God. Should I tell her about his word, his ways, and warn her about the danger of her ways, or will my intervening drive her further from God? You're around students all the time. Yeah, this is a good question. If it's a child, I think there's a there's a little bit more thinking that you have to do about that because you're bonded to that child, whether you like it or not. That if uh, this is a part of your family, this son or daughter, uh, it's uh, it's not quite the same as if you would meet someone, let's say, in their 20s, and it's the first time you've met him, and it's unlikely you'll ever see him again. You know, one of the classic illustrations of this is sitting next to someone on an airplane where you're flying with them and you'll never see him again. Mm-hmm. And uh, if a, a lot of evangelists, I agree with what they'll say, is that your boldness is inversely proportional to the time you're going to have with the person. So if it's a one-timer, you can become very much more forthright with the person and talk to them and maybe be more, uh, I don't want to use the word aggressive, but more forward with the sharing of your uh, faith than you would with a child like this. You, you've you got a, you know, a year's uh, relationship here, and I don't think you beg off and just never say anything, but there's also the place for uh, setting the stage for it by, uh, for one thing, with a whole bunch of grown children to reaffirm the relationship that you still care about the child and you still are committed to the child, even if you might not agree with all the things they do, that you're bonded. And that takes time sometimes. I know this is overused, but a lot of times parents, they just need to shut up and listen to their kids and get into some of these substantive things. And when they hear their kids say something stupid or maybe something that's far away from the Lord, don't just hit the red panic button in front of you <laughs> and think that you've got to correct them right now. You mm-hmm. know, well, uh, that's give an them instinct, a chance though. to talk. Isn't it, Mark? What's isn't, that? That, isn't that an instinct? Oh, it is. Yeah. I can tell you that with my own children, that yeah. uh, I, I adopted a little metaphor for myself, Bill, that helped a lot. What, where, is, what is it? When I talked with my kids and we got into some of this stuff and I, I, they would say things like that, I had to commit myself to say, I'm going to take my hand off my sword. I'm just not going to be ready to whip out this sword and joust with them, you mm-hmm. know, and get into this debate and yeah. you know, big-time discussion. Just let them talk. Uh, I think we forget what it was like for us when we were in our teens and 20s that we're working out a lot. And sometimes you say stuff that you don't even believe the next week, but you're you're thinking and you're processing and you're going through. And so for some of these kids, it means that maybe they drop out of their church involvement for a while. They they need to think that through. They need to get that straight themselves. And so mm-hmm. it's nice to be a guide and patient. You don't be patient forever where you just never say anything, period. But uh, to just jump right in there and start hammering on them, oftentimes the kid's going to back off from that. There's a, there's a place for um, tact and and sensitivity to the child and, and what's happening there. You're so reasonable and, and wise. Yeah, I wish I could take that because, you know, I'll be honest with you, with my three children, we've had plenty of this kind of stuff, and, and even some of it is not yet resolved. We have mm-hmm. issues that we have to talk through and work through with our kids. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'd love to say that they're just all right on the mark and going with the way I think they should live. And uh, they got to work that out for themselves. Mm-hmm. And hopefully... Uh, it will be involving the Lord Jesus, but 
there's there's no guarantees of that. Uh, I honestly think that this is a day and an age when we're seeing more of a battle there for the lives and the hearts of these young people that emerge into uh, uh, the uh, adulthood, those adult uh, years in their lives, late teens and into their 20s. There is so much around them that is trying to lure them and draw them in from the world that it's it's a struggle uh, for them, and they they need time to be able to figure things out and to work things out. So, mm-hmm. um, patience is not one of my virtues, Bill. You know, usually I'm ready to just pow, get in well, there. And, yeah, and uh, sometimes you just have to back away. Appreciate that. I always like your gentle answers, Mark. You do that so beautifully. So thank you. Let me take a little break. We have asked the professor, Dr. Mark Muska, is my guest. Well, that means. I would love to hear your questions, and all you have to do is send them in a text to 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Be right back. Ask the professor, Dr. Mark Muska is my guest, which means let me know what those questions are, 877-933-2484. Take advantage of his presence here in the studio. We'd love to get your questions, 877-933-2484. All right, Mark, I'm in Romans hey, chapter... You know what? I'm going to interrupt you. Why, no, please, is, why is the shade closed? Are you just sick of winter here and you don't want to totally look out the window? Totally sick of winter, yeah. yes. That's what I yes. thought. Yeah, yeah. And got I got the, the lights on for you. You got the scarf around the neck, too. This is something different, so <laughs> it might be, must be getting Mark, cold. Mark, it's 11 below today. Come on, give hey, me a break. what great weather. Yeah, you were Remember probably Remember when we were biking. all complaining how hot it was I know. in July? I know. So, well, this is God's answer. I know. So <laughs> he, just, he just waits a few months, okay? Yeah. All right, I'm in Romans chapter 6, and in verse 11, I'll start there. It says, mm-hmm. in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ yep. Jesus. Yep. Now, this is the verse I have a question on, and that's number 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Yep. All right, so Great verse. it's our job to not let sin reign in our mortal body? Is that not the work of the Holy Spirit that's come well, and set us free from sin? Yeah, I got a couple things for you on that. You got to keep reading because in verse 13, he gets more specific and he gives us choices here. We got to make a choice. He says, do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So you got a choice to make as a Christian. And this comes after we know that we have been freed from the bondage of sin. That verse 11 is awesome, where Paul says, consider yourselves. This is what you should see when you look in the mirror. This is who you are now. You are dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. That is your identity. 
as a follower of Christ. Dead to sin, but alive to God. Dead to sin does not mean you stop sinning. He says earlier in Romans 6, that means that sin no longer is master over us. We are no longer controlled like we were before we put our faith in the gospel. But Paul says, that is who you are, Christian. And so now you've got a choice to make. Either you're going to present the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness or to God as instruments of righteousness. And if you break that down, Bill, the members of your body, I think he's real specific. He's talking about eyes, ears, tongue, Mm. arms, legs, everything, that these are to be dedicated, offered, presented to God. That is a uh, sacrificial term there. That's what they would do with the animals that they would sacrifice in the temple. They would present them. They would offer them. And so, and in fact, a very famous memory verse, six chapters later, uses the same word, where Paul says, I urge you, therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercies, to present your body to God as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. So the, this, it, it falls to us, Bill, that our decision is, how are, how are we going to use the members of our body? Are we going to commit them to God as instruments of righteousness, or are we going to use them as instruments of unrighteousness and dedicate them to sin. And that's the decision that comes in. So that's the one thing I'm thinking. The second thing, though, is this brings up the idea of what it means to live the Christian life. And I agree with the idea that comes out of other passages in the Scripture that this thing of living the Christian life, sometimes we call this the process of sanctification and becoming more like Christ, growing from a baby Christian to a mature Christian, that is a cooperative effort between us and God so that the Scripture lays all kinds of commands on us, just like this here in Romans 6. But then, and this is why you're bringing up the question, there's other passages that talk about you're not going to do beans to become more like Christ yourself. This is going to be the work of God within you as the Holy Spirit controls you and produces his fruit in you. And so it's not an either-or thing. It's a both-and. I like to confound my students. They always give me the screwy look when I <laughs> get, when I say this to them. But mm-hmm. living the Christian life means that you are serious about obeying and presenting yourself to God as a living sacrifice, as if it all depended on you. But living the Christian life also is yielding to the fullness and power of the Holy Spirit so that he can perform his work in you as if it all depended on him. Mm -hmm. And both of those statements are true. And sometimes we fall off of that middle ground one direction or another. You've got those hard hat Christians that, you know, they get up in the morning, well, yeah, another day to live, another hill to climb, and, you know, I'm going to obey. And here they go. And they're dead set on obeying, and oftentimes they get frustrated because they're not recognizing that they need to surrender and yield themselves to God's power to obey. It's not going to happen out of determination. Some people are very strong-minded and determined, and they can do it for a while. But eventually, they usually tucker out, and then it's very bad. <laughs> and so then on the other side, though, you've got the sit-on-their-pants group mm-hmm. that's the let go and let God. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, if I'm going to grow as a Christian, God's going to have to lift me off of this chair because I'm just sitting right here until he does the work, you know. Uh-uh. We're responsible to obey these commands that are mm-hmm. in the scriptures. And so it's somewhere in the middle of that is where we fall. And mm-hmm. that uh, a, a couple other passages that affirm this, uh, one of them is over in uh, Galatians, uh, or I'm sorry, Philippians, 
uh, chapter 2, this is kind of the classic passage that's used to support this, where Paul is talking uh, to the Philippian Christians, and he says in Philippians 2.12, he says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not uh, as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You've got a responsibility to do that. Mm -hmm. But then the next verse he says, For it is God who is at work in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. So he is the one doing this, but you also are serious about following Christ, and you just don't get real casual about the Christian life. Mm -hmm. This is a serious thing for us to take seriously of uh, following Christ and obeying his commands and Mm -hmm. obeying what the Scripture teaches us to do. Mm Mm-hmm. So, both and. Okay. Mark, in uh, Matthew 18, okay. uh, verse 20, says, where, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Mm-hmm. And I've heard that prayed before, like when you're with a, you know, a few people and they say, Lord, we, we know as two or three are gathered that you're here with us. Mm-hmm. Jesus says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. What mm-hmm. leads us to think that we need to have two or three gathered before he's in the in our midst. Uh, I think you're using reverse logic on that thing. You're, okay. you're making it say something that it really doesn't say. Oh, well, thank you for correcting it's, me. It's not so much that he's saying that Christ isn't with you when you're alone, but you need to remember when you're gathered together, Christ is there with you. And so there is a power and a reality there of the the big word that everybody uses today of Christians in community with one another. We are not meant to be uh, Lone Ranger Christians out there by ourselves. We are meant to live in community as a church, whether it's just two or three people or two or three thousand people or anything in the middle. That is powerful. Uh, Jesus will say that you know if if two or more agree on a prayer request, it is it is going to be accomplished. There is a place for agreeing. This helps to justify group prayer. Uh, and uh, don't even get me going on that one uh, because uh, uh, Bill, I think group prayer today needs a lot of work and a lot of discussion in the church to have this become more effective. But there's no question that there is power that is present when Christians pray together. That God says He's going to have an attentive ear to that, but it also builds intimacy and even vulnerability between Christians to Mm -hmm. share their needs Mm -hmm. and their requests, and it builds friendship, and it builds that bond between Christians. There's just good things that come out of that all the way around. And so uh, I, in my humble opinion, I might get in trouble with some uh, uh, people in the church today, but I think we have really formalized group prayer too much where uh, there's a need to rethink this and to make this more fresh, that when Two or more people come together; they really join their hearts together in their prayer, and it's not—it's uh, not what it is a lot of the time in the church today. Most of my students, to be real honest with you, Bill, is going to get me in trouble. But when I talk to them about group prayer, they don't like it. They're—they're <laughs> yeah. they're distracted and they get—they're bored by mm-hmm. it. They just sit wow. there. It, it's like they're watching a performance from somebody, oh, yeah. and it just—it's lost a lot for a lot of our young people, especially. All right, we'll take a little break. we come back lots more with Dr. Mark Muska. Ask the professor is the full hour, so let me know what your questions are. Send them over, 877-933-2484, 877-933-2484. 
we're back already. That didn't take long, did it, Mark? We're already back. Yeah. It's awesome. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. We're talking about any questions that you have about the Bible or maybe you're dealing with a a spiritual issue that you would like some insight on. Mark's the guy. All you have to do is uh, let me know what your question is. Send it over. You can, of course, remain anonymous, 877-933-2484. Great question here, Mark, in Matthew 7 about the broad and narrow way. Mm Mm-hmm. I thought that was referring to belief in Christ was the narrow way, being a believer in him versus an unbeliever following other false religions. But recently I heard a prominent Reformed teacher say that was actually referring to those in the church, only the truly and deeply committed will find the narrow way. I don't see it that way, but is there liberty to extrapolate that principle in that passage? Yeah, I think uh, it may be going a little farther than the passage there. The, uh, what I, uh, you know, I can't speak to this because I wasn't there to hear that pastor talk. And right. so you get, uh, without context, it's hard to really be definitive. So I'm not going to speak to that. But there is a place to say that we put our faith in Christ and we become a follower of Christ. We enter on on to that narrow road. There's many other roads that lead us to destruction only through Jesus Christ and putting our trust and dependence on the gospel message that his death provides forgiveness of sin and peace with God. Only that is what justifies us and allows us to get on that narrow path. Mm -hmm. But then I will also agree, though, to say, but that isn't like it's just the end of the story. And now you've got your fire insurance policy, and now you just go off and live however you want. That path continues, and you continue on it. And there are enough warnings in the Scripture to alert us to the fact there's no guarantees that someone who starts well will continue on and continue on that narrow road. And so uh, we don't, I'm not saying that to scare people, but to just alert them that this is not something where, okay, uh, now that I have eternal life and peace with God, I can go out and party it up and do whatever I want. And that is a fundamental mistake that Mm -hmm. can be made if you're not careful. The the proper kind of a response to salvation is immense gratitude to God for saving us yeah. from our sin and, and bringing us into his family so we can be his friend. And so what do you want to do for someone that does that for you? What's your response? Don't you want to please them with what you do? Well, what pleases God is to walk with him and then to continue on that narrow road. Mm-hmm. So I would grant that part of that idea there, that it's not just entering onto the road, but it's walking on that road by pleasing the Lord. It'd be my understanding, or maybe it's been my understanding, Mark, that when you make a decision to follow Christ and you are a follower of Jesus, you are on the narrow road. Yes. You're not, you're not looking to get on it somehow and hope one day you do. You're right. on it. Right. And that it's, it's your, your um, uh, journey, your path now, you are on the path Good. when you put your faith in the gospel. But then the challenge and the opportunity for us is to stay on the path. Okay. Here's another one, Mark. Um, Proverbs 4, verse 23, Above all, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Mm-hmm. What is guarding your heart mean? How do I do that? True. You know, I don't know if I can unpack that one very well. 
I didn't mean to spring that on you without any advance warning. Oh, you do it all the time. I'm used to that's it. What, that's what yeah. the only thing I do with you. Yeah, you're very I mean. just spring stuff on you. I love that's it. That's right. You're very mean. I love to see your upper lip sweat a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. There we go. But I can get you back. I, in I know. Ways. No, I, I don't want to so. have your retaliation. Mm-hmm. So Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Mm-hmm. I just like reading the context of it. Okay. Because in this section of Proverbs, it's not just like one verse... Uh, little truisms that comes later in the book of Proverbs, where he's just kind of scattergunning with all kinds of topics, just back to back, right after one another. And so I'm going to read the passage here. It starts at verse 20, the thought, where Solomon's writing. And it's interesting. He writes to his son here. He's writing to his kids, trying to help them to gain wisdom and skill in living. He says, My son, give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your sight. Keep them in the midst of your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to all their body. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. Put away from you a deceitful mouth and put devious speech far from you. Let your eyes look directly ahead and let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Watch the path of your feet and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right nor to the left. Turn your foot from evil. Man, is that good. That is awesome. You could just sit there and think about that one for a while. So in the context of that, this is Solomon giving his son instruction here about uh, being careful about your heart and the things that you think about and that you allow into your mind and heart, that it is a source of life for those who guard their hearts. They protect it. They just don't let anything into their minds and hearts, but they're careful about that. Uh, Don't get me going on this, Bill, otherwise we're not going to talk about anything else today and probably next time too, because this is something that I think all of us as Christians have to take much more seriously, and that is the things that we allow into our mind and heart from the outside today. In the world that we live in, there are so many forces that are influencing us and the way we think and how we feel about things. And most of the time, those get into our minds and heart uh, without our permission. Uh, We don't have very good filters to keep that kind of stuff out of there. It's really obvious with little kids. My wife and I pray for our grandchildren all the time at the young age they're at that they're they're getting shaped and formed Mm -hmm. by the world around them, and they have no way to resist that. At this point in their life, they're too young. But even uh, with young adults and older adults, we're influenced by things. I mean, just think about it, Bill. Can you remember some of the things that you said and the jokes that you said maybe decades ago that were considered funny and all this kind of stuff? I mean, I can't get that stuff out of my head. Yeah, good point. I don't give it permission to get into my mind and heart, and it's like it's like pulling teeth to try to get it out if it's not something that pleases the Lord. So. Mm-hmm. This uh, I like this advice here. It's, it's Solomon saying, you know, you guard your heart. You be careful what you, you know, be careful little eyes, what you see. Be careful little ears, what you hear. It's hard to get rid of that stuff a lot of the time. I think, too, if you don't guard your heart, your creativity gets crushed. It's possible mm-hmm. that that's a derivative of this. Yeah. That, yeah. Uh, you uh, lose a lot if you are just being... Uh, I'm impressed by this. I get frustrated with this. I guess that's why I'm talking about it. I talk with one college student after the other, and I talk to them sometimes about entertainment and the movies they watch and the television shows and everything. And some of this stuff is just rank. Mm, totally. It's just awful. 
And I say to them, you know, what about the violence in this thing? And what about, what about the sex and the nudity and everything? What about the language in here? And many times they'll say to me, oh, well, you know, Mar, I, I just, I, I'm able to just let that go. I don't let that affect me. And I want to look at them and say, oh, you little lamb, are you really that naive that you that think lie. that you can just turn off to that by mm-hmm. choosing that? It gets in there whether you give it permission or not. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we have to be careful. And I don't think it's just for little eyes and little ears. It's for 60-something little eyes and little <laughs> yeah. ears, too, where yeah. uh, this, I don't think the, the challenge ever goes away. All right, Mark, this is kind of a spiritual attack question. When we're mm-hmm. under attack, does Jesus give permission to it? For us to be attacked? Well, that's the question. When we are under attack, does Jesus give permission to it? Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah. Is that a spiritual attack like demonic attack or is that attacks of the world? That's the, a good question. It's in not... the world around us. I mean, we can talk about it all. Yeah. Uh, obviously that God is allowing us to uh, be um, influenced and tempted by evil and demonic powers and evil forces. There's plenty of evil forces in the world, too. There's plenty of evil temptations and tendencies that just come right out of little old me, too, that we usually call the flesh or the the sin nature within us. And so uh, God doesn't shut down the, the temptations. And in fact, those temptations are uh, ways that God tests us, too, in our growth, as whether we can resist these things at all and try to uh, uh, see some change in our life, an improvement where we're not so vulnerable to give in to these temptations after we continue to grow as a Christian. So, uh, sure, uh, uh, Jesus doesn't put a little bubble around us where uh, Satan just bounces off and the world just has no effect and even our flesh uh, doesn't get at us. So that's that's part of the challenge. Uh, I've been listening to some great sermons lately from pastors talking about passages like Romans 5 and some of these other ones that say that even when you suffer, even when you're going through difficulty, that produces really good things as God is at work within you. It produces character, and that produces hope and that. So even though you don't like going through a lot of this stuff and the temptations and the opposition, it yields really good stuff in your life if you work your way through it and overcome it. I like to use an athletic illustration for this. How many athletes have had to try to kill themselves in the weight room to increase their strength and their agility and their quickness and all that kind of thing? It's very difficult. But what does it do? It yields a better performance when they compete in their sport. And sometimes it means sweat. It means tears. It means difficulty, maybe even injury at times as you're training for that athletic contest. There's real similarity there with life in general. Of A lot of times uh, we don't like it when adversity hits us and we're having struggles, but uh, we can also thank God for what he does in us to persevere through those things. Do we understand or see God's grace in a different light when we're in that in that valley, in that dark place? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. I mean, it's it's very difficult. I would uh, appeal to David in some of his psalms. He sounds like one forlorn puppy in uh, some of those (laughs) where he he feels like God has abandoned him and he is really stretched out there. I appreciate David's candor. He doesn't try to whitewash this with some kind of sunny, sunny face Christianity. Oh, God is good and everything's just great all the time. Uh-uh. If you live long enough, you go through some very difficult things. Mm-hmm. But then God is there to come to our assistance. And when we trust him, it builds our trust in him. And when we do, he uh, 
he sees us through. Mark, I get the feeling there's a lot of listeners right now that are probably in that dark space, that tough place. I mean, this has been an incredibly difficult year. Yeah, and you know what? I think it's been a time to uh, for the church maybe to reset, if I can use a computing term for sure. a minute, yeah, yeah. to reboot and to reset and to reevaluate that I think we've taken, I'll just speak for myself, I've taken a lot for granted as far as the quality of my life and the way my life goes, and even in the church, and this has rattled me pretty well to step okay. back from this and say, just what are our mix, uh, my expectations of God and of myself here? Uh, we, uh, uh, we have a challenge before us as a body of Christ here to uh, meet the challenge of the day and age we're living in and to persevere through the power and the grace that God gives us. And uh, boy, it's easy to say that on the radio right now, not Mm -hmm. so easy to do it, uh, that uh, I find myself and many Christians I talk to, it's kind of like we've been uh, kicked back a few steps and jostled, and it's time to walk forward and to to take these things on and to join together to do that as well, not let all this divide us in, Mm -hmm. in, in what's happening in our world. I think it's a terrific testing ground for Christians right now, what we've been going through for about the last year, year and a half. Mm -hmm. I love uh, the heart of my listeners. This uh, listener said, what do I say to my sister-in-law that used to be a firm believer, but over the few years has doubt about her faith and belief in God, especially the Easter part? Yeah. I... I ask people questions like that. Mm-hmm. I talk to them more. Well, what's what are your doubts? What are you doubting here? And what's what's causing this? And uh, let and just start talking it through. Do some some questions and and listen for a while, and then usually God will give us enough insight. His Holy Spirit will prompt us, where then we see an avenue to go with the person, and we can take it. It'll it'll become apparent to us as we talk to the person, and it will be natural. It's not something you're forcing on them and it will meet their need. So uh, Holy Spirit, uh, he specializes in that kind of thing, mm-hmm. to give us that insight when we need it and to prompt us to see the the path that God gives us to speak uh, the truth of God into the lives of hurting people, mm-hmm. especially doubting people. I, I, we've talked about doubt before, Bill. I, I am not one to condemn that. Uh, doubt sometimes is really a good thing for us to think through what we believe and to uh, to be able to come to decisions about whether we're going to believe uh, what the Bible says or not. Sometimes we just say, oh, that's sin to doubt like that. Well, uh, that's a little too easy of an answer. Sometimes a lot of people, especially young people, they need to go through their time of questioning and doubt because usually if they work their way through that, their faith is all the stronger as a result. Mm-hmm. We're having a segment called Ask the Radio Host Friend a Question. Okay. All you have to do is uh, send it over via text, 877-933-2484. That friend is Dr. Mark Musco. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. Dr. Mark Mosca is my guest, and we're 
noodling over this question that has come in from a listener about giving, given your teaching or life experience, what are some common misconceptions and misinterpretations of Scripture that you find to be prevalent among some of the Christian church community? And I mean, take your pick of, yeah. you know, a hundred things. That <laughs> There's a get, lot out uh, there yeah, that's that, being misinterpreted. That get uh, distorted. So, I mean, it's a lovely example. If you can give us an example of maybe something you've heard, we can tackle it. Because right. the part two of the question is a great question. Can you then uh, apply correct interpretation of, of that scripture according to the Bible? So it's a, it's a wonderful premise and a great question. Maybe you can text us over maybe something y- you've heard. Uh, that's been misinterpreted uh, and that's bothered you, and then we can uh, we can discuss it. Um, Mark, what about the passage that says Jesus could not do miracles in his hometown? Yeah, I'm I'm not sure if we can. Uh, I, I'm not looking at the right passage here. I, I thought it was Luke four. I'd have to look up where it says that he's not able to do many miracles there because of their unbelief. There's a connection in the Gospels there, but it's not this Luke four passage uh, that. Uh, I, I was thinking about. I got that wrong, but uh, th- th- it appears as though there has a there is a component of faith that comes into the miracles that Jesus does. That not only do they have faith, do they depend upon Him to be able to heal, but they also are putting their faith in Him that He is the Son of David, the Messiah, the King of Israel, and so that's what. Uh, goes along with many of these miracles that he performs is that they uh, they put their trust in him as Messiah. This passage in Luke 4, Jesus brings this up, and it's not so much he can't do miracles in his hometown, but he says uh, in Luke uh, 4, 24, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. And that is a little bit of a different twist to that. And I think what's going on there is that these people, they knew Jesus growing up in this town. And so for him to come home now, he's getting a reputation. And uh, he he comes to Nazareth here, and they know him as little Jesus uh, growing up. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's hard for these people to adjust to say he is very much more than what you remember as a child. But they're they're not willing to do this. Again, I, uh, I keep referring to my students. I warn the students when Thanksgiving break comes here at Northwestern in the fall that many of those freshmen, it's their first time away from home, and they've been gone for about three months now. And they know that they've been growing and changing in school. They've been becoming more mature, uh, living in uh, dormitories, uh, reading the Scripture and growing in Christ in that. But as soon as they go home, it's like their parents and their family treat them like the the mm. person they were the day they left, and they right. it, it's hard to it's hard to adjust to that that this child has changed they've grown it might not be that much but it might be significant decisions and things that the that the child has done and so it takes a little while for the parents to catch up with that so I tease them about that where you know sometimes they want to go out the night they get home and their mother will say to them, well, when are you going to be home, honey? You know, and they haven't heard that the whole time they've been at school. <laughs> you know? And so there's a little, there's a little need for adjustment there that goes on. But uh, uh, Jesus here, he is trying to get across to them. I am so much more than what you are conceiving me to be here. Uh, and so uh, I'm really not welcome 
in my hometown. And then he really steps into it by comparing his situation to Elijah and Elisha in the Old Testament. That almost gets him thrown off a cliff there in mm-hmm. Nazareth because they're enraged by what he says. But that's another question. We can get into that mm-hmm. some other time if you want to. Yeah. All right. Mark uh, chapter 28. I'm reading in verse 16. Mark then, 28. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Matthew 28. Okay, Matthew yeah. 20. Um, there is no Mark 20. Yeah, I know. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> I'm After just testing 16, you. it's just testing you. You know, it's pal. gone. Yeah. All okay. right, I'm in verse 16. Then the 11 <laughs> disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Yeah. When they saw him, they worshiped him, yep. but some doubted. Yep. Who's the some? Oh, who knows? Thomas gets blamed for this. He gets you know? blamed, but I thought it he's was just Thomas. I didn't know there was for, yeah, more than Thomas. Yeah, he's been labeled for all time as <laughs> doubting Thomas. A poor guy. You know, I mean, he gets picked on. But we don't know that there were some here who doubted with Jesus. And again, I don't think that's the worst thing in the world. They're struggling with adjusting to this now. They're looking at a resurrected guy standing there in front of them. And for me, I can see, you know, maybe you'd have some questions. Uh, Does he bear the wounds of the cross standing in front of them? It sounds like it because of what he said to Thomas, you know, come here and put your fingers in my hand and put your hand in my side and believe. And all Thomas could say was my Lord and my God. So uh, I think we got to give the apostles, the disciples here, a little room for adjusting to the new reality in their lives. I love this series, The Chosen, that I've been watching on uh, on uh, streaming this thing. And one of their uh, classic lines that they put in the mouth of Jesus, it's not in the Bible, but they have Jesus saying to these disciples, get used to different. Mm-hmm. You know, this is, this is a whole new thing that's going on here now. So I'm not going to criticize the apostles here for having some of them uh, doubt some. Uh, interesting you just brought the, the Chosen series up, Mark, because a mm-hmm. question just came in. What do you think of that series? I love it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you you coached me to watch it, and yeah, I love it. Now. And you're kind of stuck uh, on it, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, I'm loving it. And, and Dallas uh, went to school here. That's right. Dallas Jenkins uh, graduated back in the 90s. His wife graduated from here as well. Yeah. So that, and, Did you ever uh, have him in class? Wonderful people, you bet. And uh, I love it. I, I qualify it, though. You've got to remember that The Chosen is uh, partially, uh, partially fictional. Okay. He never wanders from the truth of Scripture. So he's not saying things in The Chosen that contradict anything that the Scripture teaches. At least he's trying not to do that. Who knows if he'll be, have a perfect record. But what he does is he fills in and uses some speculation about rounding out these characters and who they are. So mm-hmm. some of the characters he talks about are Nicodemus and Mary Magdalene and some of these. And, of course, the apostles, Peter yeah. and uh, Andrew and so forth. So uh, that uh, that allows us to just think of the plausibility that these were real people that Jesus was dealing with, and he was a real person right. in the way he interacted with people. So it, uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of it. It helps, to, uh, it helps you to turn your eyes on Jesus and really think about what it is to follow him. Yeah, it's powerful. Yeah. All right, Mark, Mark, the Bible is and always will be current, so when witnessing to non-believers, what is a constructive way to approach the conversation of biblical laws such as marrying your brother's wife or slavery as discussed in Exodus? Yeah, this, I mean, I don't think that's that complicated, okay. Bill. Uh, we don't have much say, time. 
Well, we say that that was appropriate for the times in which they lived, and it reflected the the society and the world at that time. And, of course, the world is always changing. Notice there's nothing in the Bible about computers or cell phones or right. anything like that. Okay, we have to adjust and to be able to take the timeless teaching of Scripture that transcends the centuries and bring it home to the world we live in today. So uh, I don't have a problem with that. We just look back at much of that and say, this is uh, what it was, and this is how they dealt with it. I like that. And I love all my listeners, and everyone has been giving me great questions for uh, Mark, so thank you for those. And I got it. They're really thinking, Bill. They know, really, this oh, is, they really it's, are. It's really great. It gets me thinking, and I, I love to hear how you answer these questions because you've got such a deft touch. I'm not kidding. You're just the best. And I got a lovely note from a woman named Mary, and and she said, and I really appreciate this comment because she said, I am dictating, and the mic doesn't always pick up every word. Oh. Because sometimes I'll get text messages, and for Mm -hmm. the life of me, I can't really understand the question. (laughs) And I want desperately to understand the question. I read it three times, and I I Mm -hmm. don't get it. And then I realize... You might have been dictating that one on the phone, and it didn't come across quite so clearly. Yeah, yeah. and we're getting a little older, Bill, and sometimes you got to slow down Speak a little bit for, for yourself. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. yeah. yeah you're getting older. You're yeah. not getting younger. So, <laughs> you're getting older. Yeah. So. I appreciate when you come in and take time to do this. Mark. Sure, I it's fun. I know it's fun. It's fun mm-hmm. for me. Yeah, and my listeners love it. So and thank being you for able doing to do this with a friend. Oh man, oh, this is fun. yeah. This is as good as it gets. So yeah. thank you very much for uh, taking time, and thank you to all the listeners that had such great questions. I'm going to be. Mm-hmm. Thinking about these tonight, and I appreciate uh, all the input, and I look forward to tomorrow. I can hardly wait to be together once again. Have a good night, everyone, and I'll see you soon. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.